Well, good morning. And uh, as always, as we get started, I, I appreciate any comments um, that, that you make along the way just because it helps me interact with you guys. Um, it helps everybody interact with each other since we can't, since we're not doing this in person, we can now. But um, like I said, I've been preaching over the, the whole quarantine and uh, but we haven't been worshiping together and we haven't been fellowshipping together. So that's why we've been dedicating our, our Sunday nights to those things because ultimately at the end of the day, um, worshiping together as the body of Christ is the most important thing. And that's when God's enthroned. That's when he rides in as the warrior on our behalf and, and, and fights our battles for us and delivers us and and gives us salvation. So worship, as always, is the priority for us as the people of God. And, uh, you know, speaking for the awakening, that's always our number one priority is to worship the Lord with all of our heart. And before I'm ever, God ever called me to be a preacher, he called me to be a worshiper. And so that's part of um, who I am, but I believe that's just part of who we are as, as sons and daughters of God. So this morning, I just want to share with you and talk with you about the end times, you know, and um, before you start jumping to conclusions about what I'm about to say, I, I want to preface it with I, I originally was not a guy too concerned uh, with the end times. And I would, uh, you know, there's different theories on when the rapture will occur and I was, you know, you have a pre-millennialist, post-millennialist, all this kind of stuff. And I called myself a pan-millennialist, meaning it's all going to pan out in the end. And that's how I kind of saw the end times. And, you know, if I just keep my eyes on Jesus, um, I will, I'll be where I need to be in the end. And in a lot of ways, that's true. But Jesus teaches about the end of the age, about the end times. And if Jesus is teaching about it, um, we need to know what he says. And not only does Jesus talk about it, but there's other scriptures. So much of scripture is dedicated to the second coming of Jesus's return and what life looks like after he returns. And so the coming of Jesus on his second return is, is very important. And uh, my friend Fernando Villalobos, when Bolivia was going through their countrywide revival in the 70s, he said that they really, their, their message was really simple. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus is coming back. And so that was the, the three main things that they, they preached on during that revival. And they saw millions of people come to the Lord in a very, very short period of time. And so, um, you know, and the Lord, I was... Uh, on my way home from work one one day, almost probably nine or ten years ago, ten years ago now I guess, and I was uh, talking with the Lord and I was a little uh, self righteous in the way I was talking because I was just like Lord I can't I don't understand how people can ignore tongues in the Bible because it's just it's so evident that we're supposed to to walk in that. 
So I was a little on my high horse and, um, you know, just talking to the Lord about it. And the Lord, as only he can do, can humble you in the most gentle way. And he said, well, Travis, if you ignore the end times, you'll be just like the people who ignore the gift of tongues. And so I definitely would have that in my heart. I was like, I'm not going to worry about that. And um, so as a preacher, I, I'm, I'm called to, to preach the whole counsel of God, the things that are comfortable, the things that we love, the things that are uncomfortable. And, and sometimes we shy away from but like I said, this is very clear that um, it's in the Gospels. And so I want you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 24 in your Bible. And we're actually going to be kind of starting in the, in the end of this, towards the end of this chapter um, to help explain what's before it. And so turn Matthew 24, verse 32. Matthew 24, verse 32. And so, Jesus, this whole chapter is about what the end of the age will look like. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and say right out of the gate, nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. There's been many people who said Jesus is coming back on this day or this year or whatever. If somebody says that, then just go ahead and mark it down that he's not coming on that day because nobody knows jesus doesn't even know jesus is waiting on the father to give him the go-ahead to go only the father knows so it's uh it's a mystery you know but there are things that jesus told us to be aware of that will indicate that he is coming that he's drawing near his his coming is drawing near so in Matthew 24, verse 32, Jesus, he says, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so it's important to learn this parable of the fig tree, Jesus is telling us, learn this parable. And so it behooves us to, to, to listen to Jesus and, and do what he says. So we have a fig tree in our yard right now. Uh, it's one of the first trees that actually gets leaves in our yard, at least. Right now it's got green figs on it. And based off my our prior experience we know that mid to late july is when those green figs will ripen but jesus he's telling us just as you know like these signs from the fig tree of what the times are i'm going to give you indicators of when the end of the age is going to come and so it's easy and, and so these signs that jesus is giving us is going to be very easy for everyone to see. That's the purpose of the fig tree. Anybody can look at the fig tree and tell like when harvest time is gonna come. So right now, it's, it's late June and it's we got green figs. We know in a month, there's gonna be ripe figs. And, and, that's, and that's not because I'm looking at a calendar, it's because I'm looking at the signs in the earth, the fig tree in my yard. And so 
Everyone can plainly see when a fig tree is putting forth its leaves even more plainly than the figs themselves. And so the same are going to be the, the same will be for the signs of the end of the age. So to see is one thing and to understand is another. Everybody can see what's going on, but to understand is another. And so Jesus is giving us understanding into these signs and to what we see. So the biblical signs of the times, they have to occur in a way that the whole globe, the whole earth will pay attention to it. And, and so like the signs of the, of the end of the age, they're going to make headline news around the world. Okay. And, and so for them to function as a prophetic sign, it has to be a clear message from God to the whole world. That, hey, Jesus is coming back. Now, am I saying that uh, the coronavirus is one of the plagues mentioned in Revelation? No, it's not. It's not even close to the pale rider in Revelation. But what I'm saying is, is that is as listed in Matthew 24, that there's going to be famines, earthquakes. In fact, it says that there's, there's 12 things. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. And that word nation actually means ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity from. And so you can even interpret that ethnicity will rise against ethnicity. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes, tribulations. There will be martyrs, Christian martyrs. There will be the killing of Christians. Uh, we will be hated by all nations because of Jesus, because we love Jesus. There's going to be many falling away from the faith. There's people who are going to hate one another. And there's going to be lawlessness will increase. Now, you know, this is a grim picture, right? And and so Jesus is setting us up to to not put any trust in this world. You know, we've part of this whole 2020 year has been the cutting of the strings to worldly attachments to um, secure, you know, financial security or health security, things that we feel like we're in control of that are very, very fragile. This world system is very fragile. And, but God's given us a, a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so Jesus is make, he's making a very loving statement by telling us how to interpret the signs of the times. This is a loving thing to do. If you were cruel and you wanted to punish somebody, you wouldn't even tell anybody. You'd surprise them. And, and this isn't Jesus. He loves us. And so he's telling us these things ahead of time so we can recognize them. And he's saying that the earth is covered in darkness and the despair of winter. So when the Bible talks about winter, it talks about a, a time where there's not much fruit, where um, things can be hard. There's, and maybe it's, there's a period of darkness, like a, could even be like a dark night of the soul or the darkness of the world. So it, it, it kind of represents a, a, dark, a darkness. And so even though the earth may be covered in darkness, that the light of God is going to arise and shine, as, as, as Isaiah 60 says. It says the leaves will begin to come forth. And these are just signs of the promise of new life that leads to the summer harvest. So when people 
when God's people see his biblical signs, they're going to know that God is on the move. So my encouragement to you right now in the midst of what's going on in the earth and in our nation is God's on the move. God is doing, he's up to something really, really good. And, and there's bad news all around us, but God is the, this is not the narrative that God gives us. He, he does say that there will be suffering, that there will be hard times, but it's not without his presence. And so as long as he is with us, we overcome. And this is, and we have to maintain that eternal perspective that we're living for another age, so to speak. This is just a very, very short span of time on the continuum of eternity. And so it's important in how we live and how we, we look at our lives. And so when Jesus says that this generation will not pass away until all these things happen, what, what, what is he talking about? Who is this generation? So the generation Jesus is speaking of are the people who will see everything occur in Matthew 24. And so in scripture, a generation is described in Exodus or excuse me, Genesis chapter 15 as lasting up to a hundred years. And so the Lord spoke of Israel's captivity in Egypt of lasting 400 years or four generations. Okay. And so there's going to be a generation that sees these things. And so the distress of the nations, they'll, they'll have this recognizable beginning. And then there's going to be an increase in intensity over a generation that will eventually culminate in his return. Now, Luke chapter 21 is uh, basically Jesus giving the, the disciples this same speech uh, with a, little, a few little differences in there as Matthew 24. But in Luke 21, uh, Jesus, he says, Men will faint from fear and the expectations of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 34 in that chapter, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, drunkenness and the worries of life and that debt and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap and so it's that jesus does not want us to be surprised by these things he wants us to be alert to be looking to be waiting and to be ready to be sober-minded all right to not be to be diligent uh to not be to numb our hearts with the things of this world that that numb and cool our affections for Jesus and that numb ourselves to the pain of the tension that our world might bring. And so, you know, the funny thing about Jesus is during in the midst of this, he says, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Just like the disciples in the storm, he said, why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? Jesus, there's Jesus is, has lived from a totally different plane of reality than we than we do, and He's inviting us into that place of where we're not shaken and we have peace in all circumstances. So in Matthew twenty four, you go up to verses three through four. It says, as He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, "Tell us, when will these things happen?" And what will, be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. So, what Jesus is telling us is, you've got to have, as we've been emphasizing over the past weeks, you've got to have the Word of God as your bedrock, as your foundation. So, read the scriptures on the end times for yourselves. Don't depend on me. Don't depend on any other teacher. Read it for yourselves so you know. It's helpful, you know, I, we obviously... Preachers obviously teach on these things to help, but you've got to know it for yourself. Jesus is also saying there's going to be deception that abounds in that day. And I, I do believe that we're in a time of, of profuse deception. All right. And so it's all the more important to be rooted and grounded in the Bible. Now, Jesus is saying my words will not pass away in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus' words will not pass away. So Jesus compared the, re the reliability of his prophetic words in Matthew 24 to the reliability and durability of the heavens and the earth. Actually, even more so. He's like, you see how the heavens and earth, they've, they've lasted all of these thousands of years. Well, my word is even more sure than the heavens and the earth. It's more sure than the rising and the setting of the sun. That's what he's saying is that his words are so sure that we can count on it like the sun rising every morning. So the emphasis on Jesus' words in verse 35 are on the reliability of his, his prophetic words. And so Matthew 24 verse 1 says that Jesus came out of the temple and he was going away when his disciples came up to the point of the temple buildings to him excuse me, to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So Jesus is prophesying that this temple building, which was central to, to Jewish worship, was central around the way they governed themselves. It was the main symbol of their people and their faith. He's saying this thing is going to be torn down. This symbol that represents you is going to be torn down. And so it was a, there was a lot of attachments that people had to this, this monument and this temple. It was a temple monument. And some of it was unhealthy because People viewed that you could only meet God in that temple. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I, I, am, I am God. And then even in Isaiah uh, 66, he says, you can't build a temple that can contain me. The one that the temple I'm going to look at is he who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at his word. And so Jesus was alluding to, he's like, listen, this building, this rock and this mortar, it's going down. But I've got a new temple that can't be destroyed. It's called my church. And so Jesus was alluding to a temple that could not be destroyed. And even to a tabernacle like, like they had in Exodus that they moved with the presence of God. That the people of God 
That was, a, that was a symbol and a foreshadowing of a temple, which are the people of God that would move with the presence of God, that would follow and flow in the moving and the leading of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3 says, If you've been born again, if you were born of the Spirit, you do not know which way the wind goes. It's like those who are born of the Spirit. And so the wind shifts and changes on a dime. And so the people of God can shift and change and move with God in the moment as they follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's important to have quick obedience as, as we're going, as we're in the world. If the Lord says, hey, pray for somebody, you go pray for them or give the, buy this person their groceries. You do it in that moment and try to be, respond to the voice of the Lord um, as quickly as you can before your carnal mind tries to fool you, uh, tell you otherwise. And so Jesus is saying there's a new temple that can't be destroyed. Now, so I want to talk about, you know, we're coming up on July 4th and I, I love my country and I think it's the greatest country in the world for people of all kinds to live in uh, despite its broken past and its broken present. Uh, we have people from all over the world that try to come to the United States of America. So I, I think it's, a, it's an amazing country. That being said, as much as I love my country, the United States is not promised anything by God. And so as the church goes, so goes the country. So in, in Psalm 33, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So if the United States as a whole decides to turn away from God, we won't be blessed. We won't be blessed. And if there's any saving of the, of the United States of America, it's going to come through the church that follows Jesus, is not compromised, and lives from a different from a different kingdom, from a different world. We're aliens and we're sojourners. This is not our home, but we're bringing heaven to earth because that's what it's going to look like. When Jesus comes, he's going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then the new Jerusalem, which is another word for heaven, is going to descend. It's going to descend upon Jerusalem and replace the old Jerusalem and heaven. That will be the final culmination of heaven meeting earth but in this in this current time we're called to bring as much of heaven to earth as we possibly can and so as the church goes so goes the country and so peter says this he says for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of god and if it begins with us first what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of god so i'm telling us the nation is in our hands as the church. Are we going to choose the Lord's way? Are we following the lead of the world so we can be relevant, so we can be cool? But as the church goes, the nation will go. And so when we repent, when we ask the Lord to search our hearts and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any painful, idolatrous way in us, we lead the way in that. 
the world will follow, the nation will follow if the American church does that. That's why we need awakening. That's why we need revival in the church. And we're not just looking for a revival that just, that, that just affects the church. We're looking for a, tra a transformation of society. The whole earth is longing for a righteous king. The whole earth is longing for Jesus. They're longing for righteousness and justice. That's the foundations of God's throne. And you can't find it. You're never going to find it with man. And so, as the church, we lead the way. And you're like, well, what I can, that's, that's just like this huge thing. So what, what can I do? I was like, you start with loving your family. If you're not married, honor your parents. Bless your siblings. If you're married, honor your wife, honor your husband. If you have children, love your children. Do not exasperate them. Lay your life down for them. Then you go into the ends of the earth, into all Judea. And I do believe that this is a, as, you know, COVID-19 is, um, you know, leaders of the world are, are telling us what to do. And I, I do feel like we respect the guidelines that leaders have for us until the point where they're saying you can't be the church. And so I know of, of friends who have gone into the chop zone in Seattle, Scott McNamara, who came to the awakening into Athens back in October. They went Saturday into that chop zone in Seattle, which is a uh, so-called autonomous zone. And they saw 20 people give their life to the Lord. Uh, some of those people were the, were the, the patrol people that CHOP assigned, some of them with guns, uh, oddly enough. And so, but they're leading those people to the Lord. One guy, one of Scott's team, somebody tried to steal a cell phone out of his hand while he was sharing the guy, sharing Jesus at the door with him. And the guy, and he, the, the, the thief stopped and ended up giving his life to the Lord. And so this is, people want Jesus. You know, I, I believe that the millennial generation, uh, they get a, a bad rap for some things. I believe the millennial generation just is longing for the reign, the millennial reign of Jesus in their hearts is, is all I think. They long for a righteous king. They long for a righteous rule. They just don't know that it's Jesus yet for most of them. And so... So all the kingdoms of man are temporal, even if there are redemptive qualities about these kingdoms. And so Jesus is saying that the only thing that will not be shaken is his kingdom, his government. That being said, the only nation given promises by God is actually his church. Israel has promises, but they're found in the Messiah. They're found in Jesus Christ. And I do believe that there's a great revival coming to the Jewish people, coming to the country of Israel. Um, but the only kingdom that can't be shaken is Jesus' kingdom. And so 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This is the reason that we're a nation, a holy nation, the, the church, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose, to proclaim his excellencies. We can't convert anybody, we can't deliver anybody, we can't heal anybody, but when we proclaim his excellencies, Jesus invades and he brings heaven to earth as he did when he was a man walking the earth. In Matthew 24, in verse 37, it says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So in the days of Noah, Noah's building this ark. Nobody's ever seen an ark before. Up until that point, water came up out of the ground instead of raining down on the earth. And so they all thought Noah was a madman. And he built that ark for like a lifetime. It took him a lifetime to build that ark, and, and they lived much longer in those days. But... The point is, Noah was made fun of, he was ridiculed, he was shamed as being foolish. And so, but the majority of people were totally unaware of what was about to happen up until the day the flood came, and the flood came suddenly, just as Jesus' return is going to come suddenly. And so, in 2 Peter 2.5, it says, they, they went about engaging in the ordinary activities of daily life, completely unaware of the significance of what would happen in their generation. And so the surprise of Noah's flood parallels the lack of understanding that the majority will have in the most significant hour of human history. Second Peter 2, 5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So my question is, who will preach righteousness in this day and hour? And righteousness is defined by God. We have a lot of self-righteousness. Every one of us are, have self-righteousness in us to one degree or the other. That's why we have to fall upon the Lord and, and for mercy. But who will preach righteousness in this hour? Who will not compromise? And what amidst, in the midst of all of the pressure and all of the tension, that the world system is trying to put on the church to conform, to compromise, to fall away from. Who will preach righteousness in this day and hour? And it's not just up to the preachers is what I'm telling you. We have a responsibility, but it's up to the people of God. Every single person that has Jesus Christ living in them has the priest living in them, has the preacher living in them has the healer living in them. So you preach righteousness. You heal the sick. You raise the dead. You show mercy. You give a cup of cold water. All of those things are within you. So knowing his family were prepared for many years without knowing this specific day or hour, in Hebrews 11, verse 7, says, By faith, no... Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved 
with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. And I'm telling you, for the church, what will save our homes and save our households is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is a beautiful thing. That's what John encountered at Patmos. That's what Ezekiel encountered. That's what Daniel encountered. That's what Moses encountered. That's what Paul encountered on the road to, to Emmaus or Damascus. The fear of the Lord is a beautiful thing. And we need it as the church. Jesus said, when he returns, will he really find faith on the earth? And so, in other words, Jesus is looking for people who will remain faithful until he returns. He's just looking for faithfulness. He's looking for those who are going to stand firm. He's looking for those who will who will become like him. Jesus is the rock upon which all the, the, the waves and the seas and scriptures represent the, the sea of humanity. And so you look at the rock of Gibraltar out there in the Mediterranean, I think it is somewhere, and the waves crash against it over and over, years and years and years, and it doesn't budge. And so that's what we're called to be as Christians. We're called to be rocks in this earth where the waves and the, and the sea of humanity, they toss things against the, the rock and we don't budge. And it also says in Ephesians that we're not to be tossed here and there by every, like waves of the sea, by every wind of doctrine. And it's not, we're not talking about theology necessarily. We're talking about ideologies and philosophies. By every wind of doctrine that man brings up. And so who will remain true to him who will remain true to Jesus when it's not cool to be a Christian? Who will remain true to Christ when you're falsely labeled a bigot or legalistic because you won't budge on God's standards of righteousness? And a bigot, this means you're prejudiced or you're, you're not open-minded, all these types of things in its general sense. And so when you stand for, hey, marriage is uh, between one man and one woman, you might be called a bigot. You might be called dogmatic. You might be called closed-minded or hateful, the very thing that you're not. But the world, they're not going to understand. They didn't understand when Jesus was here. And so you cannot have any part of your identity in the praise of man as the days come ahead. You can't. And so it's only by the Spirit of the Lord, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit and His power that we can overcome. And so I just want to leave you with this. I want you to, to leave you with the challenge to, to change the narrative. And it starts with the narrative in your head. What is the narrative in your head? And in, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, false prophets will arise. Another way to look at false prophets is false narratives will arise. Media outlets falsely prophesy every day, all day. And it's it's becoming harder and harder to, to find somebody that just reports facts, but everybody's telling you what's going to happen. And, and some of it may have some legitimacy to it. But I'm telling you, like, the Bible is the narrative. 
The story of God is the narrative. The, the gospel is the narrative. And so you have David and Goliath. And Goliath, every morning and every evening, would spit out a narrative to the armies of Israel. He'd say, I will slay all of you. Y'all are dead meat. There's no hope for you. We're going to dominate you. We're coming for your land. We're coming for your families. We're going to take everything. And he, he walked in the spirit of intimidation and the narrative of intimidation. Goliath told David that he would feed him to the birds of the air when Goliath, when David said, who are you? Why are you? Who are you? You're just a Philistine. You're an uncircumcised Philistine. And, and Goliath said, I'm going to feed you this day to the birds of the air. What did David do to that spirit of intimidation? David up the, the ante. And it wasn't anything, it was no confidence in David's flesh. David said, listen, God delivered me from the bear. He delivered me from the lion. Two things I had no business defeating. And here you are, a nine and a half foot man with armor that weighed 187 pounds with the tip of a spear that weighed 22 pounds that's heavy and he says no listen to the narrative i'm about to give you you have defied the armies of the living god and not only am i going to feed you to the birds of the air goliath i'm going to feed all the armies behind you to the birds of the air so david took goliath's intimidation up the ante and said, not only you, Goliath, but everybody, the whole army behind you. And then David, so Goliath ran at him, delayed, David ran to the battle line, which is the key. And he grabbed, he had five smooth stones that he had grabbed out of the, out of the river, which five represents grace. And he reached in his bag, put in his slingshot, something that should not kill a nine and a half foot man, but he landed it right here between the eyes and his forehead. Goliath dropped. David took Goliath's own sword and cut his head off. That's the narrative of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus took out the devil's sword and cut off his head. Psalm 37 says, The wicked raise their sword and bend their bow to cast down the needy and afflicted. But his, heart, but his sword pierces his own heart. God works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The devil has been defeated. His head's already been cut off. He is a snake that's had his head cut off and he's just still writhing. And so this is the narrative. We race to the battle line and we take out the stone of grace we, and we slay the Goliath that's trying to intimidate us, that's trying to keep the church hidden. And so this is my confession, part of my narrative that I'm speaking to myself is that we will lead thousands upon thousands in the Athens area to become followers of Jesus Christ. We will do it. We will do it by the power of the Holy Spirit.